This is an installation of the Ferris Center Events podcast series, brought to you by the Ferris Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Okay, thank you everyone. And uh, it's, it's a bit strange to be giving this talk. I'm not even sure how many people are on the call and I can only see faces of a few, but anyway, um, you know, this is the best we can do in the circumstances. So anyway, thanks for your interest and for tuning in. Um, pardon my pandemic beard, which I'm growing to sort of try to give myself some sense of how much time has actually passed when I can't leave my house. Uh, let me just talk first. I mean, I don't know how many people who are listening have actually read the book, um, but I, I just, you know, wanted to kind of give people an idea of why I decided to do this book. And it wasn't, my original idea was not to do a book specifically about Muhammad bin Salman. Um, I, I really, you know, just wanted to do a book about Saudi Arabia. I started visiting the kingdom soon after I began working for the New York Times. I had lived in the Middle East previously and then moved to Beirut, got hired by the New York Times, and uh, very soon after that in 2013, started visiting Saudi Arabia. And as when I, you know, with other countries that I've covered for the first time, one of the first things that I wanted to do was go out and sort of make a book list of, you know, a reading list of some of the best books about this country, just to kind of get myself up to speed on the politics and culture and things like that. And there, there, are, there are some good books about Saudi Arabia, but I think that the, the number of books you can pull together about Saudi Arabia pales in comparison to the number of books you could pull together about Lebanon, which is much, much smaller, or certainly about Egypt, or probably about Syria, about you know, many, many other Middle Eastern countries. And, uh, and I was also very interested in Saudi society. I mean, I was going, trying to spend as much time in the kingdom as I could. Saudi Arabia has a tendency to be a very op opaque place to outsiders. Um, and I was just very curious. I was curious about sort of the conservative parts of society, about the more liberal parts of society, about just how people, you know, really lived uh, inside the kingdom. And I found it very hard to find anybody who had written very much about that. And so anyway, I kept going and reporting for the newspaper and, you know, doing stories that I, you know, whatever kind of stories I could, you know, news or sort of more feature type stories when we had time. And uh, in 2016, I ended up getting a five-year multi-entry visa, which at the time was kind of a coup. I mean, it was, it was very uncommon at that point for foreign correspondents to get these kind of long-term multi-entry visas, visas to Saudi Arabia. It used to be that we would sort of, I'd get a week, or I'd get two weeks, and maybe I'd get a month. You know, you would sort of go and spend as much time, and then you would go home and start process replying. And so when I got this visa, I said, well, here's my chance. I'm going to be able to go and come from Saudi Arabia over this period of time. And, you know, I want to get to know a number of different people and kind of follow them through this period and use that as a way of writing about the country. Um, I didn't get a lot of interest in that. Unfortunately, I sort of talked to people in publishing and they kind of said, yeah, maybe uh, it depends. You need a bit more of a focus. And, you know, why don't you think about it a bit more and, you know, see how you're going to pull the story, you know, what exactly is the narrative that you want to tell. And so I kind of kept it in the back of my mind, kept going to Saudi Arabia. And it was by then that we realized that, you know, Mohammed bin Salman was a kind of force in the region that we don't see very often and that we hadn't seen, you know, we hadn't seen in Saudi Arabia and that really we hadn't seen in the Middle East in a very long time. Um, and, and I think the change really came at the end of 2017. I mean, he'd done a number of remarkable things before then, but then, you know, the end of 2017 in November, we have these two twin events that happened both on November 4th, where we had the, you know, the detention and forced resignation of Saad Hariri, the prime minister of Lebanon, which was sort of a bizarre episode that I have a whole chapter about in the book. And then we also had the, you know, this lockup at the Ritz-Carlton, where in a very short period of time, um, Mohammed bin Salman ordered the detention of a few hundred of Saudi Arabia's richest and most powerful men, including a number of his own royal cousins. And they were all locked in the Ritz-Carlton and accused of corruption. And, you know, I have a whole other chapter about that in the book. And these were, you know, these are two events that, you know, 
we I can't re recall ever seeing anything like either of these in the Middle East, certainly as long as I've been around. And uh, I don't even re sort of remember recall reading about things like this. And uh, it was it was after that that I sort of realized, you know, the real the real story here is who is this guy? Who is this person? You know, this is um, someone who came on the scene in 2015. He's 29 years old at the time. We didn't know how old he was. The you know Saudi government was quite cagey about releasing his actual age. And so for probably about the first nine months, we didn't even know exactly how old he was. Then it came out that okay, he was 29. Then he turned 30. And you know by the time you know and, and now you know five years have gone by and. You know, he's just proven to be sort of one of the most remarkable forces that we've seen in the Middle East in a long time. He's now 44 years old. And, um, you know, it just seemed worthwhile to do a story just trying to answer the question of how did this happen? Like, who is this person, this prince who more or less came out of nowhere in 2015? He was not one of the people who was really on a lot of people's radars, who was going to be rising to the top of power in Saudi Arabia. So the question that I really try to answer is, well, how did he do it? You know, how did he come out in 2015? And amass all of this power, shove a, shove a number of his cousins out of the way to become crown prince, and then you know, launch these massive ambitious projects to reformat the, the culture of the kingdom, the, 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 the economy of the kingdom, the social life of the kingdom, the religious, you know, some of the religious structures of the kingdom, and these, these hugely ambitious, and to also dramatically change the way that Saudi Arabia engages with the rest of the Arab world and with the rest of the Middle East. So I, you know, that's, that's what the book is. Um, and it, it's a bit tricky. I mean, now, you know, MBS is 34 years old and um, he's not, you know, he's not king yet. I mean, I think that there's probably good reason to believe that when his father does pass away, he will become king. It's hard to imagine where significant challenges to him would come from. And then as, um, as Ibrahim said, you know, he could very well be around for many, many decades after that. And so I was very conscious of that while I was writing. I tried to stay away from fortune telling. I tried to stay away from deciding, you know, I sort of look back to myself when I was 34 years old and how much you could have predicted about what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And so I really tried to keep the narrative tight around the story of how he did it, how, who he was working from, what background he brought with him when, he, you know, when his father became king and then how he used that to amass the power that he has now. So, I mean, I'm happy to sort of field questions. I mean, part of that is just to sort of guide the discussion and I'm happy to field questions about the future, but I'm also... At the end of the day, I'm a news reporter. I'm not a fortune teller and I'm not a prognosticator. And, you know, so I'm probably not going to try to guess too much about sort of where this is all going and how MBS, you know, might act down the road. Um, but but I, it is one of these questions, you know, is how much of what we've seen so far is going to be indicative of what we can expect from him going forward. Yeah, so we have uh, a lot to ask you uh, in connection with the book. But uh, if I can just ask the journalist that you are a question about something that happened too recently to be included in the book, namely uh, the recent uh, arrests of uh, a number of import very important political uh, figures. And in some ways, it was a bit of an upgrading of the previous arrest, if I may so say so, because MBN had already been under house arrest, but it looks like things have gotten worse for him. Same thing uh, with, uh, with the Prince Ahmed, who is uh, uh, an, a brother of, uh, of the current king. And uh, can you just tell us something about what has been going on in the past month or so, and that hasn't been included in your book? 
Um, I mean, these particular arrests, the best that I can gather, you know, there were sort of leaks put out that this was, you know, there was some kind of a coup and there was some sort of, you know, mobilization to try to really oppose MBS. I was never able to get any information that suggested that. And I'm quite skeptical. I think when you look at the kinds of power, or the kinds of network that these two particular princes could have marshaled, I, I just don't see how they would have put together any significant challenge to MBS when you look at all of the various, you know, organs of the Saudi state that he has direct control over now. Um, the, the thing that makes the most sense to me is that they were complaining. They have both been quite unhappy about how things have gone. Uh, you know, Mohammed bin Nayef was crown prince and then he was quite unceremoniously shoved out of the way, put under house arrest, had a number of his assets taken away. Um, you know, I think he's probably not very happy about how this has all gone down. Prince Ahmed as well, I think is not very happy about how this has gone there. You know, some of the reporting we had suggested that they had been basically complaining in private settings about the way things were going. And MBS heard about this and, you know, basically brought them in for a dressing down to try to put them back in their place. I mean, it's, it's, and it's one thing that we've seen that MBS, you know, he's, when you come, you know, this is a very large royal family. It's a royal family that historically has had lots of kind of somewhat independent power centers. You have sort of princes who ran different ministries, different branches of the security services, and they would sort of use those to sometimes earn their own money, set up their sons for their, you know, their sons' future political careers and things like that. And MBS has very much dismantled that system, and he's very much pulled all of these things under him so that they all answer to him directly. So we've seen, you know, power concentrated under him much more than we've ever seen um, in the history of modern Saudi Arabia, just kind of a centralization of power under him. Um, but he also just doesn't seem to like to have people talking about him. I mean, you have this big, you know, this big royal family and some people who I think are happy about the changes and some people who don't really care and they just kind of want to keep living the way they've been living and other people who, you know, are, are not very happy about the way things have gone. But, um, you know, the MBS has made it quite clear that he does not accept criticism from inside the kingdom, not from activists, not from human rights groups, um, and not even from some of his, you know, royal cousins or in this, you know, one case, his uncle. He just doesn't want people to be, challenging the decisions that he's making or criticizing uh, the way that he is uh, running the kingdom. Well, uh, one aspect of the story that is quite fascinating is the parallel evolutions of the, the US and Saudi Arabia in that in uh, 2015, Saudi Arabia has a new king. And then with all the changes that have occurred since, largely because of the MBS factor, uh, all the traditional norms have been appended. Uh, at the same time, in the U.S., uh, of course, Trump got elected uh, a year later in 2016, in, in November 2016. Nobody expected that to happen. And then he's also been appending norms here. So in terms of the connections uh, between the two countries, what is quite interesting is uh, how uh, there was a bit of an embrace of uh, the, the, the Saudis by uh, the new administration. And a number of paradoxical elements uh, must be noted. One is that Trump had been very critical of uh, Saudi Arabia, especially in connection with the terrorist connection. And yet, uh, right now, the relations between the two countries are very warm. And so one aspect of that story is uh, a bromance of sorts between MBS and Jared Kushner. And the two of them have a lot in common in that they're roughly the same age and they're, uh, they're both, uh, they both inherited their, their positions. 
And uh, the, the, the other fascinating aspect of both of their careers is the extent to which there was a sense of being uh, totally unaccountable and mostly of failing upwards in that uh, in the case of MBS, he made a bunch of big blunders that were very cons consequential, and yet he kept gaining after that. In the case of, uh, of Kushner, of course, right after he presented his so-called deal of the century, he was appointed with resolving the coronavirus uh, crisis. So um, can you tell us a little bit about how this alliance between uh, between Kushner and MBS came about, and uh, the the ways in which uh, again the, the the traditional establishment in both countries was, was a bit worried about the secrecy of uh, their contacts and their decisions. So, can you talk a little bit about that that aspect? Yeah, and I think that the the you know the Saudi Trump relationship. You know, I think maybe we've gotten used to it in these years of this administration. It's 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 an incredibly remarkable and surprising thing. Like if, if, you know, you sort of go back to 2016, you know, when we have this campaign going between Trump and Clinton. Um, if I think if you had convened, you know, sort of a panel of Saudi experts and said, okay, if Donald Trump wins the election, what do you think are the chances that he's going to have a great relationship with Saudi Arabia? You know, that he's going to, you know, be close with the king and the crown prince. I think they would have said, you're crazy. You know, Trump was somebody who had a quite long, you know, history of saying pretty nasty things about Muslims in some cases. And, in some cases, saying nasty things specifically about Saudi Arabia. I mean, in one of the debates with Hillary Clinton, he sort of accused her, you know, he talked about them as being people who threw gays off buildings and sort of used it as uh, something to beat up on Hillary Clinton because the Clinton Foundation had taken money from Gulf governments. And so, you know, he, there's no reason to believe that he was a fan of these countries. I mean, he had, you know, accused Saudi Arabia of all sorts of terrible things and associated with terrorism and things like that. And so, you have this sort of remarkable, and I actually think in the scheme of things, it's actually been one of the most, I probably one of the most successful um, strategies that MBS put into place, or not even strategy, but it's, it's, it's been a coup actually, I think. That, um, so anyway, so the election, Trump wins the election. I think the Saudis were as surprised as everybody else was. I think that they had been counting on the Hillary Clinton administration and you know had, had relationships there and expected that that was gonna continue. Um, and then all of a sudden, Donald Trump is going to become president of the United States. And he has this history of saying nasty things about Muslims and nasty things about Saudi Arabia. So they very quickly mobilize and they do something very smart. They send a delegation from the royal court to the East Coast and they go to New York uh, and they meet with a bunch of Trump's associates. They meet with some of the people who've done business with him. They meet with some of his political associates from the Republican Party that were close to Trump. They managed to get a, a meeting with Jared Kushner and they basically write up a report you know, diagnosing, you know, here's what, who's pro profiling the incoming administration. Here's who these people are. Here's what you need to know about them. Um, they write this up and send it back to the kingdom. And they basically say, this is an administration who are not traditional politicians. These people are business people. They are interested in the bottom line. They're deal makers. They don't really know very much about the Middle East. They don't really know much about Saudi Arabia. What they do know in the Middle East is Israel. And really the only thing they care about in the Middle East is Israel. And so the Royal Court and MBS's people sort of take this and craft their relationship to the administration. And it ends up being wildly successful. Uh, and it becomes clear how successful this is. I mean, you have a, um, you know, Donald Trump, after becoming president, decides to make the first foreign trip of his presidency, not to visit one of America's closest allies, which is what every president in history has done. No, he decides to go to Saudi Arabia. 
And so he had this kind of remarkable trip where Trump takes the first foreign trip of his presidency, goes to Saudi Arabia. The Saudis are so excited to have him that they roll out the red carpet and they decide instead of making it just a bilateral meeting, they turn it into this massive U.S. Islamic summit and they invite heads of state and heads of government from across the Islamic world. And this massive event, Trump arrives, they, you know, put his face all over town. They put American flags on light poles all over Riyadh. They have pictures of him and the king and, and they just charm Trump and Trump just loves it. And, and that, that, you know, very much paves the way for this relationship that has endured since. And, and in a lot of ways, it's one of the reasons that I think the Trump administration has proved to be a firewall for Mohammed bin Salman when he's done things that have ticked off other parts of the U.S. government. One level below that, you have the relationship with Jared Kushner, which um, you know, be also begins very early in the administration. They meet, they begin texting, they sort of you know, WhatsApp and they communicate on other messaging apps. And, and we actually know much less about what goes on here. I was surprised when I was reporting for the book and doing interviews in Washington, how many people from other branches of the government just told me, yeah, we, we don't always know what they talk about. Sometimes we do, but other times, you know, Kushner will fly to the kingdom. He'll meet with MBS and, you know, out in the desert somewhere and he'll get back on a plane and fly home. And, you know, we'll know that he was there, but that's about it. Whereas if you'd had, you know, diplomats or, you know, anybody from the State Department go meet with MBS, first thing they would do is write up a cable circulated around the U.S. government so that everybody else involved in policy towards Saudi Arabia would know what was discussed. Were there any important decisions made? Is there any you know, did, 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 were concerns expressed from either side about any kinds of bilateral issues. But I was told repeatedly by people from different branches of the U.S. government that this just doesn't always happen when Kushner goes. And so there's still kind of this hanging question mark over what exactly is going on in that relationship. Well, uh, another very interesting aspect of your book is the relationship between MBS and hackers in general as well as uh, kind of a whole category of people who do bad things, quote unquote, and shady stuff. And here again, you have this paradox of, uh, of a ruler who in some ways uh, seems to, to follow a medieval process of uh, palace intrigue, et cetera, and a lot of what he does. And yet there's a use of uh, high tech and uh, specifically uh, social media, and then more specifically hackers. And you yourself has been, have been a, you, you are a victim of, uh, of an attempted hacking. And uh, he most famously hacked uh, Jeff Bezos's phone. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about this paradox of, of MBS in that he is clearly enamored of popular culture of management consultants, of all sorts of very modern things. And yet at his core, he's really an authoritarian who has no interest uh, in, in democracy. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I mean, I would, you know, I would avoid the word medieval. I, I mean, I think Saudi Arabia is as modern as the United States in different ways. I think ISIS was incredibly modern, you know, in the same way that, but anyway, that's, that's a semantic point. Um, I mean, MBS basically realizes, you know, he, again, he comes in as a young aspiring royal who has his eye on the top prize. His father is king. He wants to become crown prince and then he wants to become king. He's, you know, this has been quite clear. And so he was sort of want, you know, but he's much younger than many other people in the royal family. He has a lot less experience than many other people in the royal family. And so he's sort of looking around for all the tools that he can, that he can find to bolster his rise and to try to take his enemies out of the way. And so 
you know, very, very early on, you have this gentleman named Suru Khatani, who would later become quite notorious internationally for his association with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who had been recruited to the royal court to do media monitoring, media, media monitoring under King Abdullah, and who had gone out to try to become a hacker. And there's, he left a lot of sort of, you know, breadcrumbs along the trail that he wasn't sort of knowledgeable enough at the time to erase, you know, going on hacking forums, trying to hire hackers, trying to buy different kinds of technologies. It was very clear that he wanted to learn how to do these things, how to get into people's phones, how to get into their email accounts, things like this. And uh, all this stuff is still online and you can go find it. He's, you know, it's all still there because he wasn't really covering his tracks at the time. He reaches out to uh, this group called Hacking Team, which was a, a, a spyware company based in Italy and tries to invite them to Saudi Arabia. Anyway, when Mohammed bin Salman, when King Salman and, and Mohammed bin Salman come in, he basically manages to convince MBS, I have these tools that can help you out. I have all, you know, I've been working on this and this is something you have lots of enemies. And, and in a way, I mean, what I was told by U.S. officials who tracked his rise, you know, he basically appeals to some of MBS's paranoia and says, listen, you've got a lot of people who are out to get you. And here's one way that you can fight back against them. So he, you know, over the next few years, rises up to be one of the most um, you know, one of the most visible and powerful people in the royal court. He's given a tremendous budget to go out and recruit people to buy new technologies. And, and this really functions on two levels. So on one level, there's kind of the, the social media manipulation. Um, and there's, you know, researchers have done things on this, kind of watch the development of the Saudi Twitter sphere, Twitter sphere. So you have everything from, you know, huge numbers of Saudi bots that have been brought online that, you know, get involved in conversations that they don't like to try to, you know, change the direction of the conversation or try to water things down. Sometimes they'll attack specific accounts. Sometimes they'll report conversations as inappropriate so that Twitter takes them down. By the time Twitter figures out whether that was a correct report or not, the wave has passed and people online have moved on to other things. So they invest a lot of energy in that. And, and you can really see the difference. I mean, when I, you know, when I started covering Saudi Arabia, there was this whole period of sort of hopefulness about Twitter both among Saudis and among people who studied Saudi Arabia, that, wow, this is, you know, people would say that this is going to sort of, quote, unquote, democratize information in Saudi Arabia. Saudis can now, you know, talk amongst each other about what they think about government policies, what they think about this and that, and, you know. Um, and now that doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, if you go, you know, you, re you look at Saudi Twitter now, and it's kind of this, it's a very tricky environment because everybody's wearing masks. Um, it's, it's dominated by people with fake accounts, fake names. You know, and it's just very hard to tell what kind of activity happening is genuine and what's not genuine. And so, you know, and a lot of that is because the government has invested huge money in getting involved in sort of bot farms and things like that that can go on and manipulate these kind of conversations. One level below that, then we've got the hacking that you talk about. And we don't have a full picture of what went on here, but we know that Suda Kothani was, you know, reaching out to teams like Hacking Team before MBS came in and then he comes back to them after King Saman becomes king goes back to hacking team, they sign NDAs, he invites them to Riyadh, he says, basically, I want you to come, I want us to show us all your products, show us what you have. And then, you know, the public record we have of the conversation then goes dark, and we don't know exactly what they bought. Um, but, you know, there's, there's many reasons to believe that the Saudis were talking to other companies that sell this kind of technology as well. And we're talking about, you know, over the, you know, off the shelf products that governments can buy, uh, that basically allow them to get inside of people's cell phones, sometimes get inside of people's email, um, and, you know, the picture has become a bit clearer as time has gone by because a number of their attempts to do this have been brought out. I mean, there was a whole period and would be May and June 2018 when there were five separate Saudi activists who were successfully hacked. 
Um, almost all of them dissidents. You know, there's a famous case in Canada. There were a number of them in London. There was a researcher for Amnesty International. And in every case, they received a text message that seemed to be addressed to them about something that concerned them. They clicked on the link and they basically gave uh, the Saudi government access to their phone. This has, you know, all been sort of researched by researchers at Citizen Lab and the University of Toronto that, you know, it's all public record now. You can go and read about it. The attempt that you mentioned on me, thankfully, I don't, I wasn't quite a victim as far as we know, but I was definitely a target. And it was during that same period that I also received a text message um, that the, these same researchers at Citizen Lab later, you know, said that they had every reason to believe it came from Saudi Arabia. And this is the same period that you had the hacking, the hacking attempt on Jeff Bezos. That one's a little bit murkier in my book. I don't have all the information on it. Um, you know, I mean, I know there's the report that his researchers, researchers put out, and there's a fairly good anecdotal case that they did hack it. I mean, he was texting with MBS, and then he did get this strange encrypted video for, directly from MBS's account on WhatsApp, and then the next day his phone starts basically uploading huge amounts of data. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very good sort of anecdotal case. Some of the other, you know, researchers who work on this thing didn't feel that it was kind of a, you know, not, not quite smoking gun. But, um, you know, when you look at other things that were happening inside the relationship with MBS and the Saudis, you know, there's with um, Jeff Bezos and the Saudis, then, you know, there's at least more anecdotal reason to believe that they would want to get inside of his cell phone. Um, and there, there does also appear to be a connection between all of this. I mean, mostly because of the personalities involved and some of the more, I would say, hands-on efforts to shut down dissidents that we saw. I mean, throughout MBS's rise, we've seen a number of Saudi dissidents or you know, activists picked up abroad, just, just basically effectively kidnapped, thrown on airplanes and flown back to Saudi Arabia. Some of them are still detained and some of them, we, we don't really know exactly what their status is. Um, you know, and then you, of course, have the famous, uh, you know, murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which according, you know, if you believe the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Treasury Department, that Sul Khatani was essential in planning this operation. And so there very much seems to be kind of a slippery slope from, okay, we can manipulate social media and we can get away with it. We can get into hacking and we can go after people's cell phones and we can get away with it. And there's also going to be sort of hands-on ways of going after dissidents, going after them abroad, trying to get them back to the kingdom, going after their devices. And this all, you know, culminates in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in late 2018, which, um, you know, I think woke up the world to, to the fact that some of this activity had been, had been going on. Well, and, uh, at the Fletcher School, we followed the whole Khashoggi story very closely because uh, Jamal had told us that he would, right after his Turkish trip, come to the Fletcher School and give a talk right here. So there are going to be lots of other questions. And uh, we're going to uh, give the floor to all the, the participants here who uh, have questions to ask of Ben Hubbard, again, the author of MBS. Uh, so Mark Benedetti, uh, who is helping here, will handle the, uh, because again, uh, since everything is done now via Zoom, so people are raising their hands, etc. So Mark's going to take care of that. Well, everyone, uh, like I said, please use the raise hand function on the participants. Um, ben, our first question comes from uh, Marina. Marina, if you want to unmute yourself and ask your question. Hi, uh, I'm a student here at the Fletcher School um, in a master's in law and diplomacy degree. Um, and I'm, I have two questions. Number one is I'm hoping you could elaborate more on your on the Saudi-Israel relationship, particularly in the defense and possible uh, intelligence sector. 
Um, the second question is, I'm curious if we could also hone in on the period around the attacks on the Saudi oil facilities. Uh, I'm curious whether there are any insights you have about what Saudi could do moving forward to better protect um, its oil facilities from that kind of an airstrike. You know, what gaps are there um, and moving forward, maybe um, if you have any insights on conversations that are happening within the kingdom, um, what is being done to better protect their oil infrastructure from an attack like that. Um, thank you so much. I also listened to your um, interview on the Lawfare podcast a few weeks ago, and I okay. read a lot of your articles. So I'm really yeah, excited about. Too repetitive, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, that uh, you, you came to Fletcher, um, and and looking for your insights as well. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, so on Israel, um, it's a bit hard to put your finger on anything. To, to really show, you know, I think, and I do think some people have jumped the gun and saying, you know, MBS has jumped in with the Israelis and things like that. And um, I mean, we do have lots of reason to believe that there are things happening under the surface that we don't know about. Um, they, um, let, let's start with sort of the public record stuff. I mean, I think the most interesting piece of the, you know, that's come out has been, you know, MBS gave this interview to Jeffrey Goldberg of the Atlantic. This would have been during his trip to the U.S. in early 2018. And this is the frankest that MBS has ever been about the topic in a public setting. It was an on-the-record interview. And he was asked, you know, I don't remember the exact question, but basically MBS's response is that all peoples, Palestinians and Israelis, have right to their own land for their own country. And, you know, that in and of itself is something that, you know, um, to hear from a Saudi royal was quite remarkable. And then he goes on to actually say some complimentary things about Israel. You know, he says, we have interests in common. Israel has a very good tech sector and they have a very good military. Um, and, and I could, and he sort of su suggests that he could see them playing a role in the relationships in the region with the Arab states in the region. And, you know, this is in, in kind of the Saudi historical context, this is a remarkable turnaround. I mean, the Saudis ever since the very beginning, and I have some quotes in the book from, Abla, you know, his MBS's grandfather, King Abdelaziz, you know, Roosevelt went to see him to ask him to support the foundation of the state of Israel. And he basically said, are you crazy? Like, why should the Jews... Why should the Jews have a home in the Middle East? Like if the Germans, and he literally tells them, if the Jews treated, if the Germans treated them poorly, why don't you take homes away from the Germans and give them to the Jews? I mean, this was, and, and you know, through all the subsequent Saudi kings since then, there's been this deep, deep hostility towards Israel, um, deep support for the Palestinian cause. And this, you know, goes to MBS's own father, King Salman, who spent, you know, time during his life, both talking about the Palestinian cause, raising money for the Palestinian cause at various times during his life. And so, for MBS to sort of come out and just suggest that, you know, Israel has this role to play as just kind of another, you know, country in the region that we have some common interests with is, is a remarkable departure from the way that things had been previously. Now, in terms of where it's going, it's a bit harder to say. I mean, I, you know, there, there are reports out there that there have been direct meetings between, you know, whether it's intelligence services or whatever. I don't have sort of confirmed information about that. It wouldn't particularly surprise me. Um, I mean, I think if you're MBS and you kind of get up in the morning and you look around the region and you say, well, what's, where are my big problems? And the first thing he comes up with is Iran. And then he says, okay, well, who's going to help me out with this? And then he looks around and he says, oh, the Israelis. Like, you know, they've got very good spy services. They have an incredibly good military. They hate the Iranians as much as I do. Like, well, maybe I should talk to them. So I, I can't claim to have knowledge of exactly what the um, sort of covert discussions are going on. But, but it's quite clear that there is an overlap in interests there. Um, 
it, it has been interesting that, you know, they, they have, you know, the other piece of the puzzle that we have is when MBS was in New York and it would have been early 2018 as well. You know, he had this sort of off the books reading with um, a number of heads of American Jewish organizations, many of which are very, very pro Israel. And there were some leaks that came out of that, that um, basically where he told them that like, we don't consider Israel our enemy. Palestinian cause is not anywhere on my priorities. It's just kind of not on my priority list. And I, I, so I cite some meetings in the book where he said similar things to American officials. And so part of this is generational. I think that, you know, and I, I think it's not just MBS. I think it's a little bit broader across the Arab world. I think the people of his age group and I think people under 30, they just don't resonate with the Palestinian issue and the Palestinian cause the way that people much older who remember the, the Arab-Israeli wars do. It's just not something that people are as worked up about or that they feel as strongly about. You know, there's other reasons for that. Um, and I, I just think he also just sees it as, you know, these are people that might be useful to me someday. And so we'll, we'll see where it goes. Um, I, I mean, I do think that because, you know, the Saudi king is the custodian of the two holy mosques. And I do think that there is an awareness that, you know, sort of coming out of the closet too quickly on the relationship with Israel could be a liability. You know, there's obvious, it would obviously be a decision that would not be incredibly popular in large parts of the Muslim world. And so I, I, I do think that there's an awareness about that. Um, I, I think it will be interesting to see where it goes, you know, after King Salman passes away. I think that King Salman, you know, he's now in his early 80s and he spent a good portion of his life talking about the Palestinian cause. And there have been some reports, not from us, but that I think are credible that sort of King Salman heard what was going on and kind of said, hold on a second. And then he sort of put the brakes on some of these things. I don't know that to be true. I wouldn't find it incredibly surprising if it were. Um, and, but it's possible that after the king passes away, these kinds of things could accelerate. Um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. But, but you know, regardless of all that, the, the change in tone has been remarkable. I mean, you have had, you know, Saudi condemnation of some of the things that the Trump administration has done, whether it was, you know, sort of moving the embassy to Jerusalem, whether it was, you know, um, recognizing the annexation of the Golan Heights, things like that, or the release of the deal of the century. But they've all been pretty pro forma. I mean, when you look at sort of what the Saudis did with the, you know, oil embargo in the 1970s and how they basically used the oil weapon to bring American economy to its knees because they were pissed off about American support for Israel. Like, yeah, now they basically put out a statement that says, well, we really don't like this and we think that the Palestinian right should be, should be respected. And so if you look at it in a historical sense, it is a significant change. Now, we'll just kind of have to wait and see when that bears fruit in terms of actual relationships and, and policies. Wait, and sorry, your, and your second question was? Um... Sorry, my second question focused on um, the attacks on the oil facilities oh, yeah, right, right. In, the, in the east. Yeah. Um, and mostly focused on, you know, what can Saudi do to better protect itself from an attack like that right. moving forward? And whether you have any insights about, you know, conversations that are happening about, you know, how can they better protect those kinds of facilities? You know, are they... Um, purchasing certain kinds of defense, air, air defense systems, for example, things like that. Right. Um, uh, yeah, these attacks were remarkable. They did not make it into the book. And I, I sort of had a point before we went to press where I was like, can I ram a few paragraphs about this in there? And it just didn't seem kind of like the right thing to do, which is unfortunate, but you could have, you know, if you do that, you could be, you know, there's a other, uh, you know, lots of other things I could have tried to stuff into the book. Um, I think these attacks were remarkable because they really, and, and, and just even not, if you, even if you remove these attacks from the Saudi-Iran context, 
they were remarkable because they just really showed, I mean, it was almost, um, and I don't, I don't say this to, and I don't want it to sound like I'm being complimentary of the attacks, but this was, there was a David and Goliath, you know, dynamic going on here. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the richest country in the Middle East that makes billions and billions of dollars from oil and which over decades has spent tens of billions of dollars on weaponry from the United States, from the UK, from other countries. I mean, the Saudis can buy almost the best stuff that the US has to offer. There's a few things that we only sell to the, you know, that we, we won't sell to them, but you know, they've got fighter jets, they've got smart bombs, they've got missiles, they have anti-aircraft, you know, they have all sorts of fancy stuff that they bought from us. And it didn't do them any good. You know, you had these drones, you know, drones and cruise missiles that end up being a combination that um, were just able to sort of get in under the radar that none of the conventional weapons and weaponry that they had bought, you know, you, you can't just sort of put an F-16 in the sky and go shoot these things down. Like, that's just not the way that it works. And so, you know, uh, you know, other countries, I think, would have been equally vulnerable to this kind of attack because anti-drone technology, you know, drones are still quite a new technology. And I think anti-drone technology is also a new, is also sort of a burgeoning field and is probably a step or two behind the actual drone technology. So, you know, um, whether the Saudis have like sort of invested in new kinds of technologies that can be anti-drone, I don't know. Um, I think that there's a shortage of this stuff on the market. I think there's a lot of private companies and certainly government entities that are working on developing these things. And, and there's a question of, you know, how exactly do you do it? Do you do it on a software level where you basically have to detect these things and then, you know, somehow jam the software that runs them so that they malfunction? Or do you actually take them out the way that you would take out a missile or a jet where you have to find a way to shoot them down? You know, which is difficult because they're very small and it's, it's hard to have that kind of accuracy. It's, you know, much easier if you're dealing with something much bigger. But if you're dealing with a drone that's, you know, the size of a bicycle, it's, it's much harder to sort of accurately take it out of the sky. So, you know, what, what exactly the Saudis can do? I mean, I'm not, I'm not a munitions expert. Um, one interesting thing that we saw is that, that there was kind of a first effort at diplomacy with the Iranians and the Saudis were very skittish to talk about it. We effectively heard about it from the Iraqis and the Pakistanis, but they, you know, we had officials from both countries, both from the Imran Khan's office and from um, Abdel Mehdi's office, the prime minister of Iraq, or I guess now, what is he, caretaker prime minister now of Iraq, um, that, you know, both said that the Saudis came to us and said, can you talk to the Iranians? And, um, and they weren't talking about restoring, you know, diplomatic relations, about sort of a wider peace accord, but it... From what we were able to, to gather, they basically just wanted to find a way to bring down the temperature. You know, what, what can we do to sort of bring down the chances that this is going to explode into an all-out conflagration? And um, it seems to have worked to a certain extent. Um, you know, we certainly haven't seen any more attacks like that. I mean, the other aspect of these attacks was, I think that there was some shock in Saudi Arabia and around the other Gulf countries that the U.S. did not intervene more forcefully. I think there had been an understanding, you know, if you go back to the Carter Doctrine and things, that the U.S. was committed to their security and to the free flow of oil. And when the Trump administration decided not to respond directly, I think that there was kind of a, a sense of, you know, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We're, we're kind of on our own here. You know, other would, people would argue that then the assassination of Qasem Soleimani was Trump's way of getting the Iranians back. And, you know, that, that, that's, I guess, a different topic. But um I mean, I don't really know what else they can do. And I, I don't think it's just the Saudis. I think it's any country. But if you're trying to defend against this kind of technology, it's a combination of trying to keep up with the technology and, and um, then also trying to have the diplomatic relations in place that can try to bring the, the chance that this kind of attack is going to take place down. Does that answer your question? 
Yes, it did. Thank you so much. I, I like talking about these issues, so I appreciate yeah. it. Okay. I'll pass the floor on to another, another colleague. So. Thank you. Um, we have a couple of questions. Do you mind if I ask you a, a couple of people's questions? Yeah, sure. And I'll just, I'll just write them down so I can. Uh... Sure thing. Our first comes from uh, Anne Ryan, who had to head out, unfortunately, uh, but she was asking you, uh, how did you recognize that you were a target of hacking? Um, how did it impact your work process? And uh, did you have some type of uh, forensic backup from the Times uh, to help you out through that? And then uh, we have another question um, from Sherrod. Sherrod, if you want to uh, unmute yourself and ask your question. Yeah, thanks very much, Mark. Uh, and uh, Sherrod here. I'm afraid I haven't read your book, and I'm sorry if this is covered in the book, but. One of the most interesting things, it seems to me, about MBS is this city of Neum, you know, up against the borders of Israel and uh, Jordan and Egypt, um, supposed to be um, a completely modern city with digital health, uh, and most interestingly of all, a sort of independent legal system, rather similar to the concessions around the borders of Qing Dynasty China or the uh, concessions that the mixed tribunals that the Ottoman Empire gave to uh, foreign courts. And um, I'd be very interested, I mean, forgive me if there's a chapter on this in the book, but what you think Neil says about MBS, the whole concept of it and where it's going to go. I, I read this week that a member of the Huaytat tribe who are being evacuated from that area was allegedly killed in some sort of gunfight. So um, anything on Neom would be most uh, interesting. Sorry, my video blipped out in the middle, so I, I, I missed the middle part of your question. Um, I, I mean, definitely about Neom, independent sort of um, jurisdiction, close to these other borders, and then, um, and then about the how I thought. And was there anything in the middle you wanted me to talk about? or? I mean, I just said the parallels with the, you know, the foreign concessions around the edge of Qing Dynasty China, and also the mixed tribunals in places like Alexandria during the Ottoman Empire. This idea of a, an independent system with a, an independent chief judge, apparently, and this sort of thing. I, I'd all be very interested. Yeah, Neom. So. For, I guess, I don't know how much people know about this, but I'll give a brief background. So in, in um, I guess it would have been 2017, MBS hosts this um, huge investment conference in Riyadh called the Future Investment Initiative, and he invites business people and investors from all over the world. Thousands of people show up. Um, and, um, and everybody's waiting for him to show up. And one thing that people don't remember is that he actually stood all of his guests up on the original schedule. I, mean, I was actually there. It was one of my, not my last visit to the kingdom, but one of the last. But um, on the official schedule, he was supposed to open it. And so we all got up in the morning. I forget, it was probably a Thursday. I don't remember what day of the week, but opening, you know, opening remarks were supposed to be by his royal highness, crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And so, you know, we go in there, hall is packed, and then he doesn't show up. And um, the head of the PIF comes in and, doesn't sort of say, you know, and then just sort of delivers the welcome remarks. And, you know, we're sort of looking around like, well, where's, where's the crown prince? Like he's supposed to, you know, this is his event. And so anyway, he shows up, I believe it was the next day. There's an event where he's on stage with, you know, some, some other investors and things like that. And, 
and he, he, he this is sort of the big release of this conference. And he says, we're going to create this thing called Neom. And this is going to be this massive new city that we're going to build from the ground on this sort of virgin patch of earth in the northwestern corner of Saudi Arabia, up as Shard mentioned in the sort of corner close to Israel, Jordan, Egypt. Um, and he sort of spells out this almost kind of, you know, Arabian Xanadu kind of vision for this place. He says, we're going to spend $500 billion on it. It's going to be, you know, taking advantage of the Saudi sun. It's going to be run on solar energy. It's going to have so many robots working there that they might even outnumber the human inhabitants. He talks, you know, later in subsequent interviews and talk about it. They said, you know, we, we're actually going to write the regulations for the city in a way that will entice business people and innovators to come live there and work there, you know, implying that, you know, basically saying it's going to be, uh, it's going to be under a different legal regime than the rest of the kingdom. Um, I mean, some of the literature was just kind of, I mean, literally out of this world. I mean, one of them, they, they literally said, you know, this is, this is a model for the future of, of humanity. I mean, they're, you know, this is like hugely, hugely ambitious. And um, so anyway, to get to your questions, I mean, I, the, the problem with Neil is we don't even know if it's going to happen. I mean, I mean, as far as I, as far as I know, at this point, they built a few palaces, they built at least one hotel. Um, but they've, they've been very cagey about whether they have any foreign businesses who have actually signed on the dotted line to set up offices there and to put money there. I think that there was a decent amount of interest, I think, before the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. After that, I think a lot of people got a bit skittish and you had a lot of people who quit the board. So now they have a bunch of new people on their board. Um, you know, and if, if, if you're Saudi Arabian right now, you know, you need, you know, bear, you know, depending on whose assessment you believe somewhere between 80 and $90 a barrel to balance your budget. And now oil is at 25. I mean, do you really have $500 billion laying around to build, you know, to put into something like this? So, you know, we'll see. It's, it, you know, times, are, it, it's early. I mean, again, I don't want to sort of be a, I don't want to be, a, you know, try to get into fortune telling, but I would say that there's a lot of skepticism in people watch Saudi Arabia that, that this thing is going to happen, you know, it'll probably happen in some form, but will it be able to live up to the, you know, sort of this massive visionary expectation that uh, MBS has put out there? We just don't really know. As far as I know, other than sort of theoretical planning, they haven't put any of this legal framework in place. So I think it's still an open question. What, what exactly that's going to look like, who's going to run it, all that, all those sorts of things. Um, you know, we'll see where it goes, but um it's, it's really a lot of money to spend when, you know, you, you're having a hard time balancing your budget. It's, uh, and if, you know, and there's a question to be asked as well. I mean, if, you're, if your stated goal with Vision 2030 and with all the other reforms is to, you know, diversify your economy away from oil, to create jobs for the huge numbers of Saudi young people who are entering the job market every year, like, is Neom really a priority? I mean, how many Saudis are going to get jobs there? Um, so anyway, it, it will be very interesting to see kind of how it develops and where it goes. It's a little bit premature, I think, to sort of, you know, cast final judgment on it now. But um, it, it, I think it's safe to say it's going to be very hard for that for this thing to live up to, you know, MBS's original vision of it. All right. Thank you very much. Um, oh, wait, there was a question about hacking before that that I didn't. Uh, yeah, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, the question on hacking from Anne, and um, there's also one more that came in regarding uh, if there's a follow-up from an audience member, what does Anion tell us about MBS? Okay, um, well, let me do that since we are just talking about Neon, and then I'll go back to the other one. 
I mean, I think it tells you that the guy is, I mean, a, a number of things. I think it tells you that he is hugely ambitious. I mean, this is somebody who really shoots for the moon. I mean, who just, um, not somebody who says like, oh, I'm going to open a new university and name it after myself, or I'm going to sort of, let's, let's sort of fix the infrastructure of Jeddah, which floods every time it rains and, you know, things like that. No, no, no. I'm going to create a new model for the future of humanity. I mean, so, so this is a guy who in a lot of ways is driven by just tremendous, tremendous ambition. Um, and, and, but then I think there's also the question of, you know, how is this ambition sort of so great that it's almost a bit disconnected from reality, you know, I mean, and does he have people around him who could have really said, yeah, you know, like Saudi Arabia doesn't really have any history with solar energy. So how are you going to build an entire city that runs off of that? Doesn't really have much history with robotics. So like, how, you know, who's going to build all these robots? Where are you going to get them to run the place? And so, you know, I think it's kind of this combination that I think we've seen from Mohammed bin Salman in other ways that there is really this driving ambition to do huge dramatic things that are going to be sort of global and impact and, you know, change the face of the world. But then, then also at the same time, we just raise questions about like how realistic is this and, and um, you know, how, how kind of close to reality are these, are these big visions going to be in the end? Um, now, in terms of the hacking, I don't know. I mean, I, had, I wrote a story about it for the New York Times. You can go read. I mean, I'll, I'll give the quick story. I basically, uh, let's see, it was June 2018. I received a text message on my, on my cell phone, which is my work cell phone, um, an SMS that said it was from the Arab News, which is a newspaper, an Arabic language newspaper in Saudi Arabia, that said in Arabic, Ben Hubbard and the story of the Saudi royal family. And there was a link to a URL that was arabnews365.com and then the extension. And I looked at this right away and I said, oh, come on, you gotta be kidding me. Like, this is, this is crazy, you know? So I said, there's no way I'm clicking on this. And so I, I started, I tried to investigate it a little bit. I opened up a browser and instead of clicking on the link, I just typed that title into a browser in Arabic and Googled it to see if there was a story. I figured, yeah, maybe somebody wrote an article. I'm curious what it says. And um, nothing came up. So it was clear that there were, you know, this story didn't exist out there on the internet somewhere. Um, I actually know the editor of the Arab News. And so I texted him and I said, hey, do you guys own this um, domain? You know, ArabNews365.com. He said, no, 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 it's not us. We don't have anything to do with it. Okay, thanks. And uh, I talked to the New York Times tech people. They looked at it and they said, well, we don't know what it is, but definitely don't click on it. It looks bad. So, you know, so I just, you know, kind of left it at that and ignored it. And, um, you know, it's just kind of one of those strange things that, um, you know, happens now and then and you don't know exactly what it was. And then, so a number of months later, I, I want to say, yeah, anyway, a number of months later, this group called Citizen Lab, who are the researchers at the University of Toronto, and these guys are basically academic hackers, you know, who sort of study hacking and um, spyware technologies. They put out a report about how uh, Israeli spyware technology had been used, not Israeli, but spyware built by an Israeli company had been used by the Saudi government to hack the cell phone of a guy named Omar Abdelaziz who lives in Canada. He's a Saudi dissident who has political asylum in Canada. And I know about his story and I think I'd spoken with him before and so I said, oh, this is interesting. I printed out the report and read it. And you know, about halfway through the report, they have a whole box of, of URLs that they had traced you know, to this network that they had nicknamed Kingdom because they had determined it was linked to the Saudis. And sure enough, on the list was the URL, ArabNews365.com. And so I sort of, you know, had this eureka moment. I wrote to the researchers and I said, hey, I think I might have another case for you. And I sent them all the information about the text message I had received, what the link was. They checked it out. They said, you know, by that point, the link was dead. It didn't, it didn't sort of do anything. Um, but the fact that they had already found it online, like, 
you know, connected to this network led that, you know, basically led them to conclude that this had been another part of that, the Saudi hacking operation. Um, I, I don't, you know, it's definitely changed the way that I work. I mean, I think I was pretty cautious already. I was pretty cautious about clicking on things and clicking on broken links and, and um, clicking on links from, you know, email accounts and, you know, emails from people I didn't know very well, things like that. Probably made me even more paranoid than I used to be. Um, there's another, another of sort of, um, you know, a number of other, um, precautions I've taken that I probably don't want to spell out in the public forum just because, you know, why would I, um, but you know, two factor, you know, two factor authentication is a good thing. And, and, you know, I think that there's the, the more of that you can use the better. So, um, I'll leave it at that. All right, great. I'm going to ask you another slew of questions here. Um, we have a few from Stephen, Jared, and Harris. Uh, uh, maybe Stephen, if you want to ask your question, if you want to unmute yourself. There you go. You're, you can there we go. Sorry, thank you very much indeed. Stephen Andrews, I'm um, uh, someone who is a guest really here at the moment. Thank you very much. Uh, but have an interest in Saudi and the area. Uh, Nidam Shahadi, I know from Beirut. Uh, so mm -hmm. I spent quite a bit of time in Beirut in the past and was last in Saudi probably about five years ago. Um, so really before a lot of the changes. Um, change seems to have happened on the surface and there are things like the Saudi Center for Commercial Arbitration on the business side that has, has been set up and ostensibly the way that business is conducted seems to have changed. Um, yet I just wonder whether, given uh, that cultural change actually takes a long time, um, things have really changed. And that uh, instead of modernization, of course, we've really got a power grab um, that keeps things working traditionally on a family basis. And whereas before you had a balance of families, um, you now have um, just one that is there. Um, and I'm just interested in your views on how that changes the way in which Saudi society itself really works. Thank you. Yeah, um, mm, let's see, well, where to start? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the issue of cultural change is, is a fascinating one. And I actually, um, I do think that the cultural forms, I, I think it's, I think at this point, and I, I, you know, like I said at the beginning, I think it's still early in the game to, to sort of make final judgments of MBS and, and his initiatives. But um, from where I said today, I think that the, you know, I think that a lot of the cultural reforms are probably the most likely to be very lasting. Um, I do think that he probably called the demographics of the kingdom right, you know, and for people who don't know, Saudi Arabia is, you know, roughly about 22 million citizens and about two thirds of them are under age 30. So it's a hugely, hugely young population. And these are people who, you know, even though they might live in a very conservative society, tend to be very connected to the outside world. They're huge users of social media. They're some of the highest consumers of YouTube in the world. Um, you know, they probably watch, you know, at least some Saudis, I'm sure probably watch the same shows on Netflix that many of you watch. So I think that, you know, when, when MBS said, I don't want the kingdom to be a really boring place, that's not a direct quote, but, you know, MBS basically said, and it's written in Vision 2030, that, you know, there's language that roughly says, you know, we, we recognize that the entertainment options available to our people do not match our sort of economic position or something that, 
you know, and they, they recognize that, you know, many Saudis who have money, the first thing that they do when they can is they get out of the kingdom. So you have, you know, every weekend you have a huge traffic jam on the causeway to Bahrain because people want to go in there. They can go to the movies. Women could drive cars. They could drink. They could, you know, engage other certain pleasures that you don't have inside the kingdom. Same, you know, people would fly to Dubai. People had more money. You know, people had more money would go to Paris or go to London or Geneva or whatever and sort of live their lives there and do things there that they couldn't do inside of the kingdom. And so I think part of it is that that wasn't the, you know, MBS, it's, it's, I think it's important to recognize how young he is. I mean, now he's 34. He's somebody who grew up, you know, reading American comic books and Japanese comic books who, and I think that like many other young sounded people looked around and said, this isn't the country that I want to live in. You know, it's really boring. And on the weekend, there's just really not much to do. And so um, I think a lot of those things will, will probably stick and go forward. Um, the only caveat that I would put there is that I do think that they're, I do think it's dangerous to assume that all young Saudis are liberals, which I think a lot of people in the West do. We just assume that if you're 22 years old, then you must, you know, want democracy and, you know, women's liberation and things like that. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that, you know, unfortunately, it's very hard to talk to Saudis in the first place and that, you know, the, the, the Saudis that most foreign correspondents and researchers end up talking to tend to be more on the liberal side. And so we hear less from the conservative parts of society. Um, you know, how deep that will soak into the society. I mean, cultural change is a really difficult thing. And there's a whole, you know, you didn't ask specifically about this, but, you know, other people are probably wondering about it. But then there's a whole issue of sort of, you know, the quote unquote religious forms. I mean, MBS, there's, you know, there's this whole question about, you know, there's this whole question about how much reform has there been in the religious sector. And it's very difficult to see. I mean, I think publicly there's been some very significant cultural change. I think a lot of these things like the, you know, entertainment, things like that, I think are most likely going to stick and will will be part of Saudi Arabia. And I think that when we, you know, look back in 20 years at Saudi Arabia, I think there's a very good chance that the country will be a very different place than it was before. And we could very well recognize, you know, this five-year period as being when that change really started. I think it's a very, very different place for women than it used to be. Um, you know, you have young women, some, some of whom are quoted in the book, just saying, that, you know, basically, they have all these opportunities in their lives that their mothers and grandmothers never had, you know, career opportunities they never thought about. So I think on that sense, there will be a big change. Um, I think that the biggest challenge is going to be, um, I think the biggest challenge is really the economic piece. Um, you know, there, there are just, as far as I'm aware, really no cases in history of any countries that were as dependent on a single resources who have managed to successfully diversify their economies. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And so for Saudi Arabia, you know, basically whose entire economy is based on oil to find a way to create an active private sector to create other means of production and, and things like that, that are going to, you know, create hundreds of thousands of new jobs every year for young Saudis. It's just, it's a, it's a mammoth challenge. It's going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult to do. And, and um, I think they've done some things right. I think other things, you know, like we spoke about Neom, I think are probably sort of shy sideshows on getting towards that goal um, that, you know, they probably won't actually contribute very much. Um, um, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Is there anything else specific? Uh, no, I think that's probably about right. Most of my contacts when I was there were with um, not the eldest generation, but an older generation who right. uh, I did get to know quite well and did get invited to um, late night coffee and uh, figs with them uh, and a chat on their own. Uh, and of course, they were a very much a conservative group of people who were actually a little um, fearful of some of the changes that were even on the horizon at that point. 
in the uh, and um, yet nevertheless business was done really by family businesses uh, and if you didn't have the right connections with the right business uh, who had the connections in the right area um, things just didn't happen um, and it's really I suppose if society is going to change then um, those are the sorts of things that need to change because you won't get Westerners involved over there until, for example, arbitration of contracts really works and there is a legal framework that uh, we in the West can recognise. Uh, I just leave it perhaps at that. Thank you. I mean, I would say you won't, you won't, get, you won't get certain kinds of Westerners involved. I mean, there's, there's huge numbers of Westerners and Western businesses that do business in Saudi Arabia and people who have learned to navigate that system my sense is that it is, you know, it has shrunk a bit. I mean, I think, you know, you know, the sort of Ritz-Carlton, I mean, I don't think it eradicated corruption in Saudi Arabia, but I do think there's reason to believe that it cut down on the number of people who were able to sort of dip into the till and pull out significant, you know, portions of money. Um, but, you know, it, I, I, there's also a very good chance that, you know, the, those middlemen just got replaced by other middlemen who were in touch with the people who were making the decisions now, so. Okay, um, so we just have a few minutes left. We have about three more questions, if that's all right, Ben. I'm going to read off two of them. Uh, first is from Harris Gordon. Assuming Trump is a one-term president, uh, how would that impact MBS's future? The second question is, uh, this is from Jared Miller. Uh, can you talk about Saudi Arabia's strategic investments in Africa, uh, especially in regards to land purchases? And then... Uh, Yusuf, if you want to try to unmute yourself again and ask your question, see you have a hand raised. Yeah, thanks. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Apologies. Thank you, Ben. It's Yusuf Klatt, Fletcher, eighty-four, and originally from Beirut. My question is really: uh, you talk in the book about uh, the kidnapping of former Prime Minister Hariri, and you talk about the fact that the, it was triggered. The trigger was to potentially spark a strife between uh, Hariri or the Sunnis and the Shiites, and put pressure on Hezbollah in Yemen given what was going on. My, my question to you is, given that that clearly was a, turned, turned out to be a total disaster of a policy, what next for Saudi Arabia with respect to Lebanon? Any, uh, are they gonna try and get back into, you know, a zone, try and sort of reassert their influence or have they just given up in your view? And I know you're based in Beirut, so I'd be interested in your thoughts. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Um, we'll go chronologically. I mean, I, you know, Trump is a one-term president. I, I don't really want to sort of do the fortune telling and, you know, like what I said before about the relationship with Trump. I mean, if you had asked people in 2016, like, so if Trump wins, what do you think his relationship is going to be with the Saudis? You probably would have had some quite embarrassing advances recorded for posterity. So I'm, I don't really want to speculate on that just because it's a bit hard to tell. Um, what, what I think is fair to say is that you know, once the Democratic primary started picking up and you still had, a, you know, quite a wide field, I, I do remember looking at it and just saying, there's nobody here that I can imagine happily having a photo op with Mohammed bin Salman. Um, you know, you, you certainly could not imagine Bernie, you know, backslapping with Mohammed bin Salman or Elizabeth Warren or probably people who just, you know, just, it, it was very, very unlikely. I just remember thinking like, yeah, it's going to, this is going to be a really hard one for them. Now that it's down to Biden, um, you will, who knows really? I mean, on one hand, Biden has said quite critical things about the Saudis during the campaign and, and before the campaign. 
Um, he is not somebody who's known to be close to them or to be a big fan of them. I mean, obviously, Saudis, as I write about in the book, had a very complicated relationship with the Obama administration. They didn't really like Obama very much. And Biden wasn't a huge player in that relationship. But I would imagine, you know, it's one can sort of expect that he would bring some of those views along with him. But at the same time, I don't know, things change if you become the president of the United States. I mean, underneath that sort of high level relationship between you know, the monarch and the crown prince and the president, you know, there, there is a huge institutional relationship that is there and that's been there for decades. So you also have, you know, large military cooperation that includes arms sales, which is what we hear the most about, but it also includes, you know, huge training programs. You have Americans who go to Saudi Arabia who work as contractors on Saudi military bases doing various things. You have Saudi military brass who get flown to military bases in the United States who get a lot of their training there, Saudi officers corps. You know, many of these people have been trained in the United States. And so, you know, once you become president, and, you know, you have security cooperation between the security services and the intelligence services, you've got, you know, obviously now we've seen the importance of coordination on the oil file. And so we'll see. I mean, maybe, you know, Biden becomes president and he realizes that he's got to sort of be a bit more practical towards that relationship. But I, behind, beyond that, I don't really want to sort of speculate too much about what could happen there. Um, we'll, just, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, I, I do think that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi made it very hard for everybody because. It, it sort of it sort of branded MBS into people's minds as the guy associated with that, and that does make it hard for American politicians to um, sort of be too close to him or be too closely associated with him. Um, Africa, I don't I don't know that much. There's really only one anecdote in the book that I have, and um, and it wasn't even mine. It was basically reporting from a from a you know a, a very respected you know South African publication that basically pulled all the documents on this private game reserve that had been bought in the, you know, in the north of the country, someone had bought a huge amount of land and thrown up a big um, barbed wire fence around it to create a private game reserve. And they had been able to track a lot of the documents and, and, and um, link them to some of MBS's money people. And so I include that in the book, but it's not my original reporting. It was all done by this group in South Africa. So you can, you can look that up or, you know, get in touch with me afterwards. I'm happy to send you a link to some of the work that they've done. Other than that, I don't really have much information about his involvement, specific involvement in Africa. Um, Hariri, it's a good question. I mean, you know, this is one of these things that like when it happened, nobody could believe it was happening. Um, you know, whether it was Hariri's statement and the fact that this man who had spent, you know, a long time in the public eye, He'd been prime minister. I believe this was his second term as prime minister. But, you know, he had a long record of public speaking and people knew what he sounded like. They knew his accent. They knew the kinds of phrases that he usually used. And he goes on TV and he just starts saying these things using this kind of fusha in Arabic that like this very sort of flowery formal Arabic that he had never really used in his life. And, you know, so everybody, you know, including many of Hadidi's close political allies here was sort of scratching their head. Where did this thing come from? And, you know, then you have the TV interview, which I write about in the book where there was a Lebanese woman Lebanese journalist who flew to Riyadh to give him an interview. And this thing, it just ends up being this kind of debacle. If your goal is to try to prove that, you know, Saad Hariri is making his own decisions. And, you know, and, and when I sort of went back to this afterwards to sort of to reconstruct it for the book and to try to figure out what they were trying to do, first, I couldn't get any of the Saudis to talk to me about it, which I assume was partly because I think they had recognized privately that it was a huge debacle and they just didn't want to talk about it. They just kind of wanted to leave it in the past and move on because it had reflected so poorly on them. Um, but then, you know, the people that I could talk to, whether it was sort of political figures in Lebanon who had been involved in various aspects of it, whether it was diplomats who were based here that were getting involved to try to figure out how to get out of this kind of unprecedented situation, officials from other governments in the region, 
really everyone was just baffled. They were just scratching their heads. And even when they would tell me sort of aspects of the plan that they were able to uncover, they almost couldn't believe that they were real. There was this idea that sort of if Hariri says a bunch of nasty things about Iran and Hezbollah, that the Sunnis of Lebanon are going to rise up and that's going to cause civil strife. There was also an effort to bring in um, Saad's older brother, Bahat, who's a you know well-known and wealthy businessman in the Middle East. And you know, that they were going to sort of move Saad out of the way and put Baha in his place. And then he would be the new sort of Saudi contact here. That didn't work because the rest of the Hariri family, first, they refused to go to Riyadh, where they were sort of summoned to have this family council to choose who was going to represent them. And they all said, no, we're not coming. And they didn't really want Baha. They wanted to stay with Saad. And so that, you know, that part of the plan didn't work out. And, and then to get to your question, they don't seem to have much of a plan that I can see. Um, during the, the, the parliamentary elections that came after, uh, after that whole thing, you know, the future movement ended up losing some seats. They, they just didn't do very well. Um, people that I talked to at that time just said the Saudis weren't involved. You know, in previous elections, they would have been on the phone all of the time, sort of giving advice and funding various things. And that time they just kind of sat on the sidelines and said, okay, well, let's see what Hadidi can do. Let's see kind of how he can perform on his own. Um, they they don't seem to have much of a plan, and I don't have any reason to believe that Lebanon is a priority for Mohammed bin Salman. Um, I think that he, somewhat early in his term, kind of looked at Lebanon and just said, well, what's the point? Um, you know, you have this much older generation of Saudis who are very fond of Lebanon. I think a lot of, you know, MBS's uncles certainly love Lebanon. They used to come here. Some of them married Lebanese women. They built houses up in the hills, and they would come here over the summers, and they would party in Beirut, and they would live in their houses. You know, they they were very, very fond feelings for the place and for the people. And as far as I've been able to gather, MBS took one trip here when he was, I believe, a teenager. And he basically just didn't like it very much. And then I think when his father became king and, you know, he started getting this power, I think he looked at Lebanon and said, you know, this is a failed investment. You know, for all these years, we've been putting all this money into the Hariri family. We started with Rafiq. He got blown up. You know, Saad inherits the dynasty. And here we are. And, you know, Hezbollah is still the most effective, both political and military force in the country. They have a you know, military that's stronger than the Lebanese military, which we had been giving financial support to. Saad Hadiri, who's supposed to be our guy representing our interests there, is in a power-sharing government with Hezbollah and doesn't even, really, doesn't even really criticize them publicly. I mean, there was a time not very many years ago when one of his main talking points was talking about Hezbollah weapons and talking about weapons outside the arms, you know, the hands of the state, you know, the phrase that they would always use. And he doesn't talk about that anymore. You know, that, that particular issue has sort of been removed from the things that the political class in Lebanon talks about. And so, you know, I think for MBS, he sort of looked at Lebanon and said, well, we put all this money in there and what have we gotten out of this investment? Um, so, you know, unfortunately, their solution to that was to come up with this kind of crazy gamut to sort of force Hariri to resign. That didn't work. Since then, I haven't seen much... Um, sort of much evidence that there's a new Saudi plan to get back in Lebanon. I think there's things they're doing on the diplomatic front. They do have an ambassador here who is, you know, quite well respected and I think has been quite active in going out and meeting different parts of society and things like that. But, um, you know, and, and, you know, on one hand, I, I understand their perspective. I mean, you know, Iran, you know, which has fewer resources than Saudi Arabia when it comes to finances, you know, has an incredible asset here. I mean, Hezbollah, whether you love it, whether you hate it, just from a purely objective standpoint, is an amazing creation. You know, the fact that you were able to create, you know, a military force inside of another state that, um, you know, can sort of have a veto over the parts of the state's policy that they don't like. I mean, it's a remarkable accomplishment. And, 
the only way that the Saudis could really do that would be to try to you know do something similar. But if you're you know that's not something that you can do with some sort of creative maneuver by forcing the prime minister to resign. That's something that it's going to take. You know, Iran took three decades to build Hezbollah. So if Saudi really wants to have influence here, it's something that's going to take a very long time and a lot of work. And I, I, I haven't seen sort of any evidence that there's that kind of a plan in place. Thank you very much. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much, Ben. Uh, before we let you leave, uh, or probably more likely just go to sleep, since that's one of the advantages of, uh, of this format, I want to ask you a very quick question about uh, uh, what could be a very, a very broad topic, but I won't ask you to play a psychologist or anything like that. But I think okay. there is one aspect of the biography of MBS, which is quite fascinating, which is the fact that he was always considered uh, the least likely to succeed in some ways. Like if there, there were ever kind of polls of young princes, et cetera, uh, he had brothers or, uh, and half or half brothers who were far more accomplished than he was. He had cousins who were also much more accomplished in terms of their education and achievements. And uh, yet uh, MBS outmaneuvered uh, everybody. So the, the one aspect I find fascinating is um, the fact that uh, one of the more recent revelations about, uh, about MBS was about his love for money and his personal wealth. And I think the New York Times and you in particular, I think did a great job. I think it was your scoop to reveal the story of the yacht uh, that, uh, that uh, MBS had, had acquired. And there was a time when this aspect was not widely known. And there's also another aspect of that story about money which is that a lot of the shakedown of the Ritz Carlton uh, benefited him. And uh, so uh, here, the interesting question about the psychology uh, is that uh, one day, apparently, uh, MBS realized that he was very, quote unquote, poor compared to his cousins, because he grew up in a, in a family where most of the uncles uh, we're, we're busy having, I don't know, arm deals and whatnot and having huge commissions, whereas his father was never into that. So uh, what, what do you make of that line of analysis, especially in terms of his attempt to build his own empire, financial empire? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I try to avoid too much armchair psychology, and it's not like I've sort of spent enough time with a guy for him to tell me his, you know, deep dark secrets and things like that. Um, but, but I, I do think that it it is interesting to look at, you know, kind of his positioning in the royal family when he was coming up. Um, you know, historically, and again, if you were to sort of go back before Mohammed bin Salman and poll Saudi experts, they would tell you, you know, they would they would talk to you about the importance of seniority and the importance of balancing things between various branches of the family and and um, and if you sort of use those old rules, there was there was there were very few reasons to expect that MBS would end up being the person who ends up on top. There was just kind of not very many reasons. He was not from his father's. You know, his father was the 25th son of the founding king of Saudi Arabia. So there were lots and lots of people ahead of him. So then he manages to live until sort of that many other of his older brothers and half brothers die off, and he becomes king. Okay, so that's sort of the first piece of luck that puts MBS in position. Um, 
And then MBS is not from his father's first wife. He's from, it's either the second or third. I was actually not able to confirm exactly. There's, a, there's one wife in there that it's a bit hard to get good chronology on, but he has, you know, a number of older half-brothers who are much more accomplished. I mean, one of them was the first Arab and the first Muslim astronaut. You know, Sultan bin Abdelaziz flew on the space shuttle Discovery, um, you know, after being a fighter pilot in the, Saudi, in the Saudi Air Force. Another one of his brothers, you know, Faisal bin Salman has a PhD from Oxford. Um, you know, some of his, uh, he has other older brothers who passed away, you know, one of whom ran, you know, sort of the family media company. You know, these are people with quite serious resumes. You know, another brother, Abdelaziz, who's now the oil minister, but this is somebody who spent his entire career working in, the, you know, a rare Saudi royal who worked in the oil industry. And so if you, you know, had sort of laid out the resumes of the sons of Salman and said, well, which of these seems to be the best place to kind of take, take leadership? You know, there's a very good chance you would have picked somebody else. MBS, on the other hand, did not, um, did not spend significant time abroad. He was raised predominantly in the kingdom. He never studied at a foreign university. He studied at, you know, King Saud University in Riyadh, got a law degree, and then he basically went to work for his father. I mean, he had one other job working for a Saudi think tank, basically, that advises the Saudi cabinet. But other than that, he shadowed his father. And so the main reason that he's able to, you know, there, it's really his relationship with father with his father that puts him in pole position while his older brothers were building their careers and traveling the world and doing these other things. MBS stuck very, very close to his father and developed this very tight relationship with him. And so his father, you know, chooses him to be the one once he becomes king. In terms of the financial stuff, this is, you know, um, there are other branches of the family that wielded tremendous capital. And I have, you know, all these stories in the book about, you know, various princes that, you know, have found various ways to earn money off parts of the Saudi economy who just live, you know, crazy, crazy amounts of money for, you know, people like me, at least, and probably most people on this call, you know, just dropping hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars casually on various things. And, and there is a point where MBS in his teenage years kind of realizes like, huh, you know, my father is not as rich as all these other people. Um, you know, he's prominent because he's the son of the founding king, because he was the governor of Riyadh. And so, He's well known and, and was well regarded inside of the family. He was the family disciplinarian. So, you know, if princes or princesses got out of hand, it was King Salman, you know, then Prince Salman who would be dispatched to sort of put them back in line. But he wasn't rich, you know, in the Saudi royal context. And so, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, as a young person, spent a lot of time watching these cousins, you know, take these incredible vacations where they would just be dropping huge amounts of money, flying, you know, fleets of jets and sports cars abroad with them when they went. And, um, and there's very much a sense after his father becomes king in 2015 that he, he's never talked about this, but you sort of see it in the pattern of behavior that he feels like, okay, it's my turn. And this is when we see a number of substantial purchases. You know, he spends roughly, you know, a little bit less than half a billion dollars on a yacht in a, in a day. He basically sees it floating off the southern coast of France. And he says, I want that yacht. And he sends his people to buy it. And they, you know, they buy him the yacht, which he still has and which he spends a lot of time on um, in the Red Sea these days. Um, you know, he buys a big palace in, outside of Paris that's, you know, written about in real estate magazines and in money magazines as, you know, the most expensive home in the world. And so he goes out and he buys that. And there's all these other, there's the South African property, which comes out later, which, you know, I mentioned to somebody else. So, you know, a bit hard to get into the psychology, you know, is, is this just because, you know, my father is the king, I'm the crown prince, you know, this is the way that we should live. It could be that, or is there sort of a sense of, you know, this is what these other guys were doing and now it's my turn, you know, I don't know, and I've never seen or heard about him speak about this in any kind of forum, but that's very much been the pattern of behavior. Well, thank you very much, Ben. So the book is terrific. I recommend that all of you read it. 
hopefully next time you'll have a visit here. It will be when things go back to normal.